Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. Have you ever made a mistake? I'm not talking about a small mistake, but a big one. One so terrible that you can't even look someone in the face and tell them what you did. I could see the rocks in their hands, their fists raised high in the air. I had sinned, and I got caught, and the punishment for the sin that I committed? Death. The religious leaders, or the Pharisees, brought me before the crowd. These men know everything about God's law, or at least they think they do. I was terrified. I couldn't even look up. I just knew any second the first rock would be thrown and that would be it. Then I heard the Pharisees ask Jesus if I deserved to die. I had heard about Jesus, heard that he healed the sick and made blind men see. But Jesus said nothing. I just saw him bend down and write something in the sand. But the Pharisees still kept demanding an answer. My heart was pounding in my chest. I thought, this is it. He's going to end up agreeing with them, and I am going to die. But Jesus just kept writing in the sand. But then he spoke. He said, let any of you who have never sinned throw the first stone. Did I hear that correctly? Did Jesus just defend me? Me, of all people. I thought I heard the crowd walking away, but I was too afraid to look up. Then he spoke to me. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord. Neither do I, he said. Go and sin no more. Jesus stepped up and defended me, me. And when I looked into his eyes, all I could see was love. Instead of feeling ashamed, I felt loved. I felt free. And the only one who could have ever done that is Jesus. And he can do the same for you. Oh, how he loves you. No matter what you've done, Jesus' love can cover all your sin and shame. I know, because his love did it for me. Well, like you saw in that video, it can change your life when someone shows you grace. But like the woman in the video in John chapter 8, without grace, your life could be over. John tells us that story in chapter 8, and it forces us again to look at ourselves in the mirror. I guess maybe the question for us this morning is, who do you most identify with? In the first couple of verses of John 8, it says Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. Jesus has just come to Jerusalem, 
where God's people are celebrating something that was referred to as the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. It was an annual festival that celebrated how God had provided them during the 40 years of their journey to the Promised Land after they had escaped slavery in Egypt. In verses 3, 4, and 5, he picks up, As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? I've got an idea that this is a great illustration of something that makes Jesus mad. When people just don't get the idea of grace, because God values grace more than he does their religion. Now, don't miss the irony of their indignation in the moment and the reason why it probably made Jesus so mad. Remember, they were in Jerusalem for the specific purpose of celebrating God's miraculous providential provision in their life. They're celebrating God's grace and his intervention, without which they would have all died as slaves in Egypt. Without God's grace and protection, they would have all died when Pharaoh came after them and had them trapped between his army and the Red Sea. Without God's grace, they would have all died from starvation in the desert wilderness. Without God's grace, they would have been lost as they wandered through the desert without him to lead them and guide them. It was only by the grace of God that they were able to defeat the residents of Jericho when the walls came tumbling down or the residents of the rest of their promised land. It was only by God's grace that they were enabled to become a nation with a capital city like Jerusalem. And the reason why they were at Jerusalem at the temple was to worship a God of grace. And now, in the middle of that celebration, in the middle of that festival, celebrating the grace of God in His action in their life, this group of self-righteous, judgmental, religious radicals had forgotten it all. And now, here they were, demanding justice, not grace. In verse 6 of chapter 8, it says they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Well, I guess there's not much justice when you're trying to set somebody up. But that's exactly what they were doing. But Jesus simply stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Again, don't miss the irony of the moment when Jesus lowers himself down to the level of the accused just as he lowered himself from heaven to our level, the ones who were accused of being guilty of sin, and we in fact were, like her, we had been caught in the act. And when he, and when he does, he begins to write. And although it doesn't record what was written by Jesus, we do have this clue because the word used to describe he wrote in the sand or wrote in the dust, it's the word Ketagrapho, which literally translated means to write against. It would be similar to our charges of indictment 
that are served to somebody to appear in court. You're probably familiar with the image of Bill Gates and his millions and billions of dollars that he's made through Microsoft. He spent approximately $30.8 million to purchase a 72-page handwritten book. The difference was that made it so valuable, it was written by Leonardo da Vinci. It's called the, Codes, uh, the Codex Leicester. In it, da Vinci recorded his observations about things like astronomy and the natural elements of fossils and rocks and water. He even talks about how he uh, is guessing that the moon must be covered with water because that's what makes it reflect the light of the sun all the way to, to the earth. Historians will tell you that it's the most expensive writing in the world, now valued somewhere between 50 and $60 million. And yet, even though it may be the most expensive writing, is it really the most valuable there's nothing more valuable that day than what Jesus wrote in the dust beside that woman caught in her guilt. In John 8, verse 7, it says, They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. No wonder it made Jesus mad when people forgot that God values grace more than religion. And he certainly values grace more than their gotcha moments. It's always easy to forget about grace when we forget about God. And that's what they had done. Somehow they're in the right place. They're in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem in the right place at the right time. They're there for the festival celebrating God's provision during their journey to the promised land. They're even there at the temple to worship God. But it's always hard to show grace when you're so afraid of losing what you value most. And what they valued most was their own control over their life. It's usually the way it is with us as well, isn't it? It's tough for us to show grace to others when we're afraid that if we do so, we'll lose control over what happens next. And that's exactly what happened in verses 8 through 11. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Now go and leave your life of sin. What a great example of something that I've said before. Jesus leads with grace, but lands on truth. You see it in these two statements. I don't condemn you either, showing her his grace but also landing on the truth of God's expectations and being accountable for God's values in this world, he says, leave your life of sin. In this, Jesus shows what really matters most to God. Grace plus truth equals love. 
Isn't that really what we need most when we've messed up so badly that we can't even look people in the eye, let alone stand the idea of looking God in the eye? When my conscience convicts me is usually when I crave the comfort of God's grace the most. And in those moments when I don't, what I don't need is people piling on top of my guilt and my shame when I'm trying to sort things out and move forward with my life, is when I need the counsel of God's truth. I've gotten so messed up because I forgot to follow His way to begin with. And now more than ever, I need to find His direction, His path again. And that's what gives us the clarity that we need so that we can adjust our course and find ourselves back in alignment with God's will for our life. In the pictures that you'll see next, it's a picture of Jim O'Neill and Paul Girard. They're standing beside a plane because they're both pilots. Jim was flying a Cessna one day when he noticed his vision wasn't quite right. And within 10 minutes later, sitting in a pilot's seat by himself up in the air in that Cessna airplane, he realized he was completely blind because of a stroke. Paul, the other pilot, was also flying that day, and when he heard the call for Mayday help, he flew over nearby within a few hundred feet. And he began to talk to him over the radio and promised to guide him. The words he said were quite simply this, Jim, I'm here, and I can guide you through this but I need you to block out every other voice you hear except for mine. They successfully landed the plane after a, a couple of you know, starts and stops, and everything worked out fine. As you could see from the picture, they, they both embraced after they landed. For many of us, it feels like we're flying blind in mid-flight right now as well, doesn't it? unable to see what to do next. For families with kids at home, how do you see what to do next with school and job responsibilities? For families with kids at home, what about sports? What about their involvement in extracurricular activities? How do you keep them involved in things they should be involved in and not involved in things they should not be involved in? We're in mid-flight and our holidays and vacations have been messed up. Seniors, things like proms and graduations have been lost in the shuffle. We've lost sight of career because of shutdowns and layoffs. Do we work from home? Do we go back? If we go back, what will it look like? Are we even able to go back or have they cut back or have they even shut down never to reopen again? And what if we were planning retirement at this point? The stock market has gone absolutely crazy. In all of this, we've lost our rhythm to life. Everything has been rescheduled. Nothing makes sense. Nothing is happening when it should. I mean, for goodness sakes, it's September and they're still playing hockey playoffs. They're still playing basketball playoffs in September from last season. And now... During the next two months, 
as if it's hard enough, it hasn't been hard enough to see how things are going to work out, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the next presidential election season when things are going to heat up, accusations are going to fly, honestly, lies are going to be told by both parties and probably throughout the media. We're going to be overwhelmed by noise and chaos, and because of that, we're going to be unable to see how this is going to work out. Just like the pilot, we're going to need to block out everything else except the voice of Jesus. God is the author of order. Satan is the source of chaos. He's known to be a liar, a deceiver, an accuser. And yet because God values His grace over our fear of losing control in the middle of chaos, what makes Jesus mad? Sinners who throw stones at other sinners. That's certainly something we need to be aware of. Jesus is the only one in the story who has a right to judge and condemn, but he doesn't do it. He wants us to follow his lead, to follow his voice, to offer the same grace that we've all needed and received. If you're a history buff, especially a Texas history buff, you may recognize this next picture. It's of Sam Houston. He's famous for remembering the Alamo and leading Texas in their fight for freedom. He actually served as the president of Texas before they became another state in the Union. Actually, they're a republic. He was the only man to serve as governor in both Tennessee and Texas, two different states. He was also elected to the House and to serve in the Senate. And yet, despite of all of his life's successes. Sam Houston's private life was a train wreck. He married young and divorced. He fell in love and remarried again and divorced again two more times. It was near the end of his life. He swallowed his pride and confessed his failures and humbly turned to God. And as he was standing in the middle of a Texas creek, after being baptized, the preacher looked at him and proudly proclaimed to everyone on the shore and to him as well, Sam Houston, all of your sins have been washed away. To which Sam simply replied, shaking his head, may God help those fish. The good news is that God has more grace than we have sinned. Moses murders another man and then tries to cover him up in Egypt. And yet God's grace is in his life. David sleeps with the wife of another man, gets her pregnant, and then tries to cover up. And eventually leads to the death of her husband through friendly fire. The Apostle Paul, who bragged about being a Pharisee's Pharisee, later claimed in humility, to be the worst sinner ever. He himself would write in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, God's grace increased even more. The paraphrase known as the message says it this way, when it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. 
God truly does have more grace than we have sin. And yet God's intention is that as sinners who've been shown grace, we share that grace with others. Again, referring to the paraphrase, the message, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, if someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. For if you think you're too good for that, you are badly deceived. Here's a great example of that. People objected to Mel Gibson a number of years ago when he decided to make the movie The Passion of Christ. They didn't think he had a right to make a movie about Christ and release it at the most significant time of the year for Christians right before Easter. Mel lived his life out of control with DUIs, a foul mouth, anti-Semitic that embarrassed even Hollywood with the depth of his depravity and his immorality. And yet somehow this image of Mel with the actor Jim Caviezel completely captures the concept of God's grace towards us. Can't you just imagine as in this picture, a bloodied Messiah who sacrificed himself for our sin, sitting and talking heart to heart with us about our life. Not too many years after that, there was another one who had followed in his steps. No, not the steps of Jesus, but the steps of Mel Gibson. Robert Downey Jr. had had many of those same personal struggles with fame, wealth, and public shame. Despite a promising career early on, he trashed his career with drugs and alcohol to the point where no movie director would ever hire him because he was too high of a risk to being able to finish the movie. They wouldn't insure him. Eventually, though, he got sober, got a role, and was honored for his work. And when told that he could choose whoever he wanted to present the award to him, guess who he chose? Mel Gibson, who by that time had become a leper in the movie industry for his own actions yet again. It was during the presentation of that award ceremony that Robert Downey Jr. explained why he asked Mel to present this award to him. Actually, I asked Mel to present uh, this award to me for a reason, because when I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope, and he urged me to find my faith. Didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was rooted in forgiveness. And I couldn't get hired, so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him, and he kept a roof over my head, and he kept food on the table. And most importantly, he said that if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoings, and if I embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, uh, hugging the cactus, he calls it, he said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, I'd become a man of some humility, and that my life would take on a new meaning. And I did, and it worked. Um, 
all he asked in return was that uh, someday I help the next guy in some small way. Uh, it's reasonable to assume that at the time he didn't imagine the next guy would be him. <laughs> or that someday was tonight. So anyway, on this special occasion, and in light of the recent holidays, including Columbus Day, I humbly ask that you join me, unless you are completely without sin, in which case you picked the wrong industry, <laughs> in forgiving my friend his trespasses, offering him the same clean slate you have me, and allowing him to continue his great and ongoing contribution to our collective art without shame. He's hugged the cactus long enough. What makes Jesus mad? Sinners who throw stones at other sinners. Jesus didn't make us hug the cactus like they'd said in the video as punishment for our sin. Instead, he embraced the cactus. He embraced us with our sin. It's only right that he expects us to show that same type of mercy to others. That was his point in telling the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, when in verse 33 he summarizes it all with these words, I had mercy on you. You should have shown the same mercy to your fellow servant. You see, we serve and worship a God who could best be known as never and ever all at the same time. The prophet Jeremiah looks around, much like many of us look around at our country today, and saw that everything he loved about his nation was being destroyed. He was afraid that there would never be a return to normal again. And in that kind of despair, in that kind of frustration, in that kind of discouragement, what did Jeremiah choose to do? According to Lamentations 3, verse 22 through 24, his response was to worship God with these words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Nobody understands the meaning of those words quite like the woman who was thrown before Jesus on that day during the celebration of God's providence. Someday, on the other side of eternity, I don't know about you, but I look forward to hopefully being able to listen to her sing God's praises for his mercy in her guilt. And more than likely, when she's finished telling her story, she'll look at me and say, what about you? What's the basis of your hope? Is it a return to life as we've always known it? What if it doesn't? You see, the crisis in our life usually reveals the idols in our heart what is it that you're putting your trust in? 
Who is it that you're putting your trust in? The government? The president? Your employer? Sports? Investments? They may make great idols, but they make terrible gods. How ridiculous it would be to sing, the steadfast love of our government never ceases. My employer's mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of my favorite sports team to me. My investments are my portion and the source of my hope. Imagine how mad it must make Jesus when we live with rocks in our hands instead of love in our heart. Do you see yourself in this story? Are you like the one who was caught and cowering in fear of the consequences of your sin? Or are you like the ones who were conspiring on how to use religion and even how to, re, how to use the commandments of God because they were afraid of losing control? Or are you instead like Jesus, the one who came to show us that grace plus truth equals the love of God? I'm convinced that in the next few weeks, in the next couple of months, the message of our logo at Marysville Christian Church, learn more about Jesus so that we can love more like Jesus, so that we become a truer reflection and look more like Jesus in how we live our life will become more challenging than ever. We'll either realize how desperate we are for God's divine intervention and grace, or we'll be tempted to look for rocks to stone those that we consider guilty. But the greatest challenge of all will be to offer the grace and truth of God's love within us today now is the time to make sure that you share in his nature that you are one with him that you're united with his values his heart and his mind why not become one with him by hearing his voice swallowing your pride changing the course of your life and making a public statement of your connection to him by being baptized into christ We'd love to give you that opportunity. Let us help you. Reach out to us at Marysville Christian. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.